At Utility Muffin Labs, we are dedicated to accommodating our consumer clients with uncontrived, austere, generalized, and adequate snack-based comestible muffin provisions for your cafeteria or common staff member gathering areas. We refrain from overt decorative adornment that can foment jobholder chaos and sedition. A saccharine workforce is a productive workforce. Procure your necessary muffin repository by visiting us at utilitymuffinlabs.com, on Facebook at Utility Muffin Labs, on Twitter at 25 Years of VTM, or Utility Muffins, all one word, on Instagram at Utility Muffin Labs, one word. Support the labs on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, and finally, adorn your human form with our t-shirts at tpublic.com slash users slash Utility Muffin Labs. Utility Muffin Labs, think homogenous. This is 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective podcast brought to you by UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Welcome to another episode of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. My name's Nate. And I'm Bob. And today we're going to be doing something... That we don't often do, which is review a book. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we're going to be doing something that a lot of people have inadvertently been asking us to do. Um, but I think they just didn't know that we didn't have to do it because White Wolf already did it. We were we directly addressed this not too long ago where it was, why don't you guys do like a, like a seminar, sen- sen- seminar, a seminar uh-huh. uh, for storytelling techniques and what have you in a story. And the answer is... This is this right here. This book we're about to review, literally, is the foundation that got me to keep storytelling. Because before this, I was relying on raw creativity and what made sense to me alone. What this book did was iron out and define that I was doing it correct and how to proceed forward, and it polished up my game. And that's that's what the book's for, right? Right. This uh, this so to clear away all the clouds, uh, um, the fog of war. We're reviewing the Vampire Storyteller's Handbook for Revised, and this book really is it's it's pretty different from most of their other books in that there's not a whole lot of concrete like here's stats and rules. Like there is a little bit of stat stuff in here, insofar as there are some disciplines, and they're in the Storyteller's Handbook for a reason because they should be storyteller characters. And um, also the specific clan slash bloodlines of the true hand in the revised, as far as I know, there's not a true hand book. And why is that? Because it's not something that made it into revised. It's back in V20, but it's not something that made it into revised. However, you know, there are some interesting concepts with those clans. So they're in here. Um, but that's really the only stat stuff like disciplines and clans. Other than that, this book is literally, even the way that they designed it, it's designed to be kind of like conversational. It's like a round table discussion. And to, to help you out, there is the true hand in revised, uh, Kane's chosen is a book that's in there. That's oh, just the black hand. And I understand that, but it tells you the fate. Right, 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 right. No, that, that's what I mean when they didn't, when they but didn't I'm make it. They distinctly did away with it. Right, right. That, that's and that's what I mean by we, we did away with it. I was trying to keep a little bit of mystery there, so that uh, yeah, I, uh, how we do we have spoilers at this point. <clears throat> yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that you can really have a spoiler on a game that's uh, this old. Um, if you haven't read the books by now, I'm sorry, you had Apple opportunity. And, and fans of the True Hand, they did because it, Gehenna. It's all ramping up to Gehenna. 
and distinctly the yeah. true hand was a Gehenna thing. It's so. very nice of you to be even handed with uh, people that are fans of the true hand. I appreciate that. That's... You know I'm not. I'm literally doing it so I don't <laughs> marginalize people, but you know my personal taste. If you don't, please review. Yeah, review, read, listen to the uh, the true hand book. Which we... one can argue is the anger man Nate trying to keep the lid on me <laughs> on most of the damn podcast, but yeah. So what is the what is the point of this book bob what is what is the whole reason to even have this like we know we've we've had storyteller books before right and it's just like eh, it's just stuff for you and your arsenal as far as like the game is concerned but does this really tell you anything about how to storytell uh yeah can i get can i get highbrow with it you can get highbrow okay so the deal is is that they so far have been going with the assumption that you get what difference between a storytelling game and an RPG, right? that there's a distinct difference, that you understand that. Most people say, yes, we do. I've dungeon mastered before. I've you know, ran games and been a keeper in some games they're called. Right. And the fact is, is that you're really just a ref at that point, because usually those games are smart in detailing out what the monsters are, how they behave, and it's pretty black and white. That's why a lot of video games came about from those games. And with the storytelling game approach of Vampire the Masquerade, it, you can't do that because right. there is no black and white. It is a gray style of storytelling done so, so the player has free-flowing opportunity to add their character's story to the ongoing plot right. and forces the storyteller to take in those details to make it a nice, productive, ever-moving right. story. And I think, too, like just in the beginning of this, maybe like I've come to a different understanding as well that – Though I got started with this game, really, like I, I played Dungeons and Dragons, but I I always felt like the having to learn a bunch of rules and then going around and rolling dice, I just didn't think that was very fulfilling. Well, they give it like a term in here, and they call it beer and pretzels gaming, right? And I think that's what I missed as a player was that those games are kind of like ah, we get together with our buddies and our pals, and we bullshit for four or five mm -hmm. hours, and nobody takes it especially serious. We go out, we have an adventure, we kill some dragons, we get our treasure, and we go home and we do it again next week. I maybe was taking the like gaming too seriously because I've always had a story-driven mentality. And you know, they they do a very good job in here right at the beginning of telling you like you, you're not wrong for having for wanting to do that. That's just not necessarily this game. It can be if you want it to be, but that's not really how it was intended. I think the reality is that everybody enjoys beer and pretzels gaming. Right. Anybody can get involved with beer and pretzels gaming. That's why it's designed for the age range it is. Right. Number one. Number two, there doesn't take a whole lot of thought in terms of keeping you invested. That doesn't mean you can't play it serious. It just means that at its whole, I can, I can sit down at a table with a bunch of kids and have one of the kids run the game. And me just enjoy hanging out with my whoever, you know, relative friends of the family or whatever the situation is, and just have a good time. And it's no big deal because it doesn't deal with the themes that you're going to encounter in White Wolf Gaming, you know, which is a more mature a level of, of storytelling. Right. Now, having said that, um, if I say it's fun for everyone, any adult, what am I referring to? Anybody wants to just distress, just relax, right? just chill, hence beer and pretzels gaming. Meaning, I come here and sit down, it's going to be a lot of laughs. I can talk to the guy to my left or right out of game. The storyteller will, or the dungeon master will even get involved in those, those sidebar conversations right. as he's prepping the combat or prepping the module. And that kind of, it's, that, that, that's fun for a time, but it won't hold someone like me or you at all for very long because it's like, well, 
I could find other entertaining things to us or to myself. You know, I know you feel the same way that that can be better spent with what we're doing. When you get to a storytelling game like White Wolf, we demand the attention of our audience and we demand that our audience demand that from us. There's right. a lot of demand going on. And, and what that is, is that we're going to take it serious. We need you to portray the role that you pitched and we need to portray the world accordingly. In doing that, I don't have time to be out of game talking about anything unless it's before game right. or to just after to be mindful of everybody's time. Now, one of the things that they address in here too is kind of like that mentality where people perceive other people that play this game or that run this game is perhaps a little arrogant. And I'll, I'll be straightforward on this. Like I understand where that concept comes from and, and white wolf understands it too, because this is a game like it does require you to be invested mentally, emotionally, obviously physically, because you, you need to have your time to do it. But yes, it's a game. Yes. It's designed to it's, it's primarily designed for you to have fun, but it's meant to take place in a world that is a more cruel and less forgiving world than our own. And we're playing these these concepts that are, one, rooted deeply in horror, and two, rooted deeply in what that the realism of that horror is. You know, it's, it's very much not the, you know, I'm going to run forward, kill all the baddies. It's not Blade. You know, that's that's what's important here. But you know what? It's your game. And if you just want to run that, great, do it. You're the storyteller. But this is going to give you some steps to kind of portray what the game was created for. And I also want to go to bed for White Wolf. They distinctly outlined this book flat out. That wasn't their intent. Right. Their no, intent absolutely. was not to create a product for you to go and smash mouth blade down everything. <laughs> right, right. That's not what it's for. It goes into in-depth detail in this book about disciplines and usage and why to have them and when to use them. Answers questions long asked by fans right. at this point. That were just in demand for people to know every little nuance. Right. And they get into a lot of it. But the most important thing to hammer home is you are the storyteller. It's your world. However, to coincide with the product that we wrote, which at this point, there's over 60 books they've made. Yeah. White Wolf, not us. Right. White Wolf. <laughs> right. There's over 60 books that they've made that help portray this long going saga tale. Right. That your characters are a part of. That's if you're running canon. Right. If you're not, have fun. But. To have fun, this book is sort of the Bible for the storyteller to note, hey, man, am, am I on the right track here? Do, do, does my, my Chronicles missing something? Is it me? I'm having issues with players. Is, how can I resolve those issues? Mm -hmm. Hey, man, what happens if I do knuckle down and, and uh, excuse me, embrace a wraith? Can I embrace a wraith? Questions like that are answered in this book. Right. Now, I don't know if I if I am a good player, if I am a bad player. I don't know. You know, I just play and and I run this game. And I've always ran this game and and gone to games as players with this mentality in my mind. There is no right or wrong way to run this game, but there is. Do you do you understand that? Yeah, and it's 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 something directly get the feeling you had more to that let me pause yeah, that there, there there is distinctly when you sit down with a storyteller the storyteller should be forthcoming with you about what kind of game that they're going to run i'm going to run a game that takes place in the world of darkness but it's a game of my or it's a world of my own invention it's a city of my own creation and i'm not really too concerned about any of what we'd call canon material all right great i have an understanding of that well i'm running a game and uh it's is 
you know, in the periphery, it takes place in the world of darkness, but I've basically just not read any of the books and I don't know any of the rules. So I'm just going to kind of wing it and do my own thing. All right. I have an idea. I'm going to run a game and it takes place in the world of darkness in Chicago in 1996, right after the werewolves got done, blah, blah, blah. It's totally canon. All right, great. You've set that stage for me. I know what I'm getting into. Let's follow that. I'm okay to follow that, whatever it is. But is there a right and wrong way to run this game? Kind of, yes, there is. I like to say legally they can't say no because it would be talking against their own product. I'll say there is a right and wrong way, definite on behalf of my opinion of as to how they project it. And what I mean by that is it sounds like I'm very much making sure I don't take a stance. I'm taking a stance. Right. There's definitely a right and wrong way to play it and to run it. And that way is whatever your troop feel is. Right. You should never run it in the game. Like, I'm a storyteller. I'm running a game. And if you guys want to play, get along. Otherwise, fuck off. Right. Well, it's going to be a game of just you. And that is completely the wrong way uh, to do it. And that's what it comes down to because it's a game based on fun. But to address it, this is a game that tells you off the bat it's based on shared fantasy between adults. That's what you have to understand. That is what storytelling is. Right. It's, it's literally bullshit. It's you're making it up. And everyone else is making it up. It's a game of make-believe, but between adults. And to keep it relevant, we have to agree on a shared fantasy of themes. And you have to hear those to know what to portray. That said, once you get it, your responsibility as a player is to know, hmm, well, I can't just tiptoe into this. I mean, this somebody has put in a lot of effort right. to invite me to sit down and be a part of it. And there are other people who want me to be entertaining with them being entertaining. Right. And to all have a good time. Now, that said, accepting that verbal contract between everybody and the troop is set, how do we have fun with the game? Well, Bob, you're against out-of-character talk. Uh, if you're in the scene, yes. <laughs> if you're right. not in the scene, please do. Because right. that is, that's just polite. Right. And, it's and, just polite. And we're going to get more into this in our follow-up for Nerd Words. We're going to record it right after this podcast so it's all fresh. We're going to continue. But a couple of things here uh, at the beginning I want to address the first thing that kind of jumped out to me was that they indicate like, all right, this is a book for storytellers. If you're not a storyteller, don't bother with this book. There's not a lot of things that you're going to get as a player. I kind of disagree. And I, I say kind of insofar as if you are the type of player that you don't want to get a look behind the scenes, you don't want to see how the sausage is made, as they say, you just want to get in there and play and let your storyteller do the work for you. Great that's fine. Don't bother with this book. But if you have ideas and you want to story tell, but also you want to know like, Hey, I've had all these questions and I'm not quite sure. Like what is the like accepted unified opinion of white wolf at any given time? This is the book for you because there's a lot of questions you're going to ask as a player. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be confusing to you as a player that reading this and sort of filtering it through the lens of a player is really going to help you to improve at the hobby you've chosen to pick that that you are you find enjoyable. Choose is a good term, right? Right, and 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 also, <laughs> <laughs> right, and also it's going to help you to develop because every player I feel like is a potential storyteller. You know, when you if you have enough creativity to sit down and to make this three dimensional character, that's just one in a series of many to tell a story that maybe you want to tell. And maybe some people just don't have that. That's fine. But this is going to help you to develop both from a clerical perspective and uh, a, just a gameplay perspective 
So not as important for players, but definitely is worth a read. And I would agree with you. The, the term of being important for players to read is to be empathetic. You're trying to establish empathy with your storyteller. If you wanted to know how difficult it is, well, there's a whole book dedicated to storytelling. So clearly it's not your end. Right. It's not the player end of sit down, I have character, we can have game. Right. It's, it's not because that mentality comes from what? comes from the traditional it comes from beer the and community. pretzels. Right, it right. comes from the beer and pretzels mentality that has been around longer. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the, and the idea is, is you think that there's a, there's a book of monsters, there's a book of encounters, they're going to put those together, and that is not easy. No. But it, they'll, they'll do it, no. and they're used to it. Yeah, but, R- running a and d game is just as difficult as running this game, but for different reasons. Right, and, so, and, and they're very similar because they're both storytelling on a level, yeah. right? And, now, and, and with those games, not to interrupt you, but to kind of piggyback off of you, like sitting down and creating a fantasy world, you know, creating a Tolkien-style world, that can be a real huge pain in the ass. And this is not to say, as we've said before, that like you can't have the same, you know, multi-layered sort of experience with those games. You can. Here's, here's how to spit it out. I think, I think we just lightning years, mm-hmm. I think will help with this. You mentioned Tolkien, right? Mm-hmm. That's a story and a saga everybody knows. Right. It's a part of, and they expect it to go a certain way. Right. No deviation. Right. You know, you're not going to find what's his face, the the human sword guy, ranger dude, who I don't even know his name, but he runs around with a <laughs> surfboard elf guy who shoots everything. <laughs> you are asking the so, wrong person. <laughs> okay, so like those two people, you guys might get it, yeah. but you're not going to see an evil version of them pop up because the story was never told that right. way. I think in a lot of ways we may have just handed in our nerd cards because uh, I don't know any of the characters. My point, Nate. Right, My point. Right, Stay right, with me. Stay right, with right, me, right. Bob. All right, so the point is, is that in that it's linear. Saga, story, done. It's very black and white. White Wolf makes the distinction in saying we all know the tale. We all know your home city by night, right? We all know what the nightlife is like. We all know what reality is. We're right. in it. We live it. But overlayer that with now a gothic horror setting. It is that's where the fantasy comes in. It's your world, but darker. You know, if you play a game and you're in, you know, like Chicago by night, I was told hundreds of times there's people came from the city to play the game and their way home, the places we described by the book, mm-hmm. I secretly got a nerd boner when they would tell me they're on a bus. <laughs> Or they're on a train going past that neighborhood, and they remembered that scene. Right. Or they, you know, terrified. One of my one of my favorite uh, things, and it's a nerd word thing. I won't go into detail, but someone tell me they were afraid of a certain area in Cabrini Green because we ran one scene there. Like they, it was nothing right. like it was now in the modern, but they remembered it being Cabrini Green right. and what that was like, and it was brought to life. And I was like, that's awesome, but that's only possible. Because it's it's literally open ended, right? It's not set in stone, and so that's the difference between the 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 beer and pretzels and storytelling in terms of White Wolf, right? And that's that's the difference. I feel that a lot of times we dance around it, but yep. that's kind of the example that just hit. Now I want to do something that um, we do occasionally, where I read a little excerpt out of a book. Now I want to do that. I want to read a little excerpt out of here because to me it really encapsulates everything that I've ever experienced at a tabletop game and at a LARP game where people were like, I don't understand why I'm getting so much heat. I don't know why I'm getting so much flack. This game seems like it's totally not made for people like me. And I just feel like we get a lot of complaints. We have for years, right? Especially in the LARPing community where you're you're like, you know, Bob, you, you think you're like the shit. Like you're an elitist. And this doesn't make sense to me. Like, why don't you just give everybody else a fair shake? I want to read this little excerpt. 
And I feel like this will summarize for everyone who's ever played a LARP or a tabletop game in a Camarilla setting and who felt like they got the shaft but didn't understand why. Now, vampires, it's talking about how we as a community, we're gamers, right? We know the language, we're geeks, right. we're, you know, we, we dress in a certain way. Vampires, on the other hand, tend not to be gamers, right? The masquerade stipulates that they hide among humankind, yet they very obviously differ from it. Vampires often wear designer labels and drive prestigious cars. They're almost universally, universally lithe to the point of cadaverous and beautiful. Even the vampires who prove the exception to these very general guidelines make the point by being breaches rather than observations of the rule. The Nosferatu are so much more hideous than simple ugliness by dint of comparison. The Shuddersome Zemis has a deadly beauty like a shark. The Bruja Drifter looks all the more earthy in his thrift store wardrobe and tousled hair when compared to the local society. Mostly, these affectations exist to draw mortals to the vampire, in addition to leading them to believe that there is nothing special about the kindred. The supernatural attractive, uh, attractiveness makes, them, uh, makes hunting easier, and the fact that most look, at least for the most part, like normal people, makes it easier to get away with it after the fact. A kindred who, quote, dresses like a vampire or insists on wearing a wardrobe that is out of line with the values of society in which she finds herself are going to draw some unwanted attention. Consider for a moment a gathering of kindred at an Elysium. The setting is the patio and ballroom of a prestigious local hotel. The kindred displays their subtle finery, elegant cocktail dresses, distinguished suits crafted from the finest wools and silks, sycophants condescendingly bedecked in tuxedos and other affluent uniforms when in walks... Some joker in a floor-length black duster, perpetual five o'clock shadow, and a pair of mirrored sunglasses that look like they've been liberated from a highway patrolman in a bad 70s black exploitation film. <laughs> His tattered t-shirt has the name of some noisy band scrawled on it. Weapons bulge, weapon bulges protrude obviously from beneath the coat, and his long flowing hair, raven black of course, has been tied back in a ponytail reminiscent of a syndicated action series stars. Many of the assembled kindred collapse in laughter. Some of the more vocal ones ask where the movie's being filmed. Any mortals present will certainly recall most of the distinguishing features possessed by the dime store Schwarzenegger, as will all the kindred, but they're probably not going to tell the police anything when the body count in town starts storing, starts soaring, though they may tell the prince. If the overly dramatic kindred is young enough, he may have flashbacks to those dreams everyone has of being naked at school. This is probably not his intended effect. It's petty but so is kindred society. And that really, I think summarizes every LARP game, you know, or even tabletop game. Like you have to understand the game that you're playing. Like we said, we, we draw that comparison to blade, like blade exists outside of vampiric society and he hunts them down and kills them. Well, that in that perfect world, he's a badass and no one can stop him, but that's not the cinematic world that we're playing. And we're playing, where were the vampires, right? So, you know, oh, you're an elitist. Oh, you're smug. You're arrogant. Like, that's the game. Like, that is literally the game. And well, and I mean, I think to, to, to point out that is the fact that um, I've, whenever anybody's called me an elitist or was mad and, and that, that's their, that's what they could say. They can't pinpoint what's going on. Um, I'm not, I'm not an asshole for, for not correcting them. Right. Because there's a level of mystique as to how I do what I do. You've known me for years. You still don't know how. And, you know, it's, and, and it's not me bragging, it's me going, I read all this material, and the one thing I got was that I never answer those questions. Right. Because we could talk forever about why you see something as a certain way, but the fact comes down to this. The methodology 
to how kindred society was made. And even in description points it out, they do it to attract prey, right? That's why they do it. And when you walk in looking like that dime store, whatever, if the storyteller lets you do that, oh man, shame on him, shame (laughs) on him or her for not at least get like, by the way, I've approved people like that, but it's always after a a lengthy disclaimer. You know, I, I, I've always felt that like, you know, as a storyteller, you know, when you, when you are creating a fully vibrant world, you're going to have assholes like that. And no offense to anybody who is that I use the asshole term affectionately, but, 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 but really you, it's kind of like an asshole thing to do. Yeah. I'm not going to have you apologize for it. Cause it's like, that is, I mean, oh, you, no, I, I'm not apologizing. Yeah. I will call you an asshole. I will call you an asshole to your face and I will clap you on the back while I do it. We're, I use the term asshole out of love. We're pointing at the muffin shoe store and if the shoe fit wears, right. It, that's what we're saying. And, and the fact is, is that having that guy come in, what's really happening? Well, take away everything else, but understanding there's a maturity level that mm-hmm. isn't reached right. when you're that guy. Can you be a sword master without peer that has existed for centuries mastering the craft of melee? You can. They're in the book. And you have it of seven. Everything else is average, but that is you. Absolutely. Now, I want you to think about the mindset of that guy. And you need to do it every time you choose to be that guy. Do you want to walk around the world killing everybody that doesn't meet your skill? Like, is that not beneath you at that point? You are godlike world caliber. Mm-hmm. You want the person who matches your talent or who seems to supersede it or the guy who dares challenge you. Right. He's practiced forever to do it. There's honor amongst that concept. And in those concepts I can't approve. I will not tolerate them ignoring the buildup. Right. Ignoring the great story of how they got there. And you can spot these people. Often these people have strong issues with what's going on in their life. And they choose this fantasy world to be where they vent. And so they come in with these crazy ideas. And these are the people who, when they get dragged in front of the prince, because they'll, they'll undoubtedly someone in that social description you have right. is going to chide them one too far. And then this person's going to frenzy and use that melee seven slasher style skill. Absolutely, because in in the real world, I can't smash your face. When you antagonize me to the point where I'm so pissed and I don't know what to do but but react in violence, well, I made this this avatar for my own inner turmoils. And when it's time for me to smash your face, well, I I have a system I can do it in a safe and and nonviolent environment. So I can act that out. Yeah, you can, but you're going to get fucked for it. But is that the scene to have you in? And that's the question, right? That's right. the storyteller morality. Should I have said something? Why, why let him go here? But let's just call it as it is, right? Let's do that philosophy approach. That is the scene. That is what happened. What is the, inli- uh, the likely outcome? Well, he tells you. They're going to laugh. He's going to feel like he's naked and showed up to school, right? Mm-hmm. Just somehow is there. Or in the shittiest clothes and he's all out and people are going to poke fun at him. Nobody likes that feeling because you don't belong. Right. And so it's either he's the type, he or she, by the way, that's just as culpable of females as males uh, that, that are going to be there that come walking in with that mentality. I'll address that probably actually here at Storytelling. We'll handle that. But uh, we'll do the male perspective and then female mm-hmm. that I've, know, I've witnessed, right? The male perspective is coming in and you're just trying to be different. Showcase all your knowledge of the combat rules. Right. And that you did know it and that you're going to handle all these people who think they're better than you and dare them to make fun of you. Well, naturally, they're going to make fun of you. Right. What you don't know is, is that there's a storyteller trying to preserve what's going on. The storyteller absolutely knows. Odds are you are not the toughest character in the room. (laughs) There's no way you are. No, not by a long shot. Because usually you're more together with it. 
more mature, the best dressed person in the room, who's the calmest person in the room, who's the hardest to read is the one you should fear every fucking time. And that is not because, oh, that's really the prince or that might be the sheriff. It's because it's a ghoul. (laughs) It's a ghoul whose job is to sit there and give you level headed commentary and to handle cleanup. Right. That's why. Because in that room, that dude's there. And and if every if the whole collective can't handle that guy and it does get violent, that's who's really telling the prince. And it's gonna come like the guns of the Navarone. It's coming because the prince is gonna go, I gave you all laws to abide by. They are the traditions we agreed to. They were violated. Now that catalyst who came in, you couldn't handle him at your event. One, who didn't address him before he walked into the room? And then on down from there. And if you're thinking he's the only one in trouble, no. All those pleasantly smiling dressed society, they're going right with it if it's a good prince because it gives him a chance to lay out why he's the authority and how he handles his authority and then to give the extreme example of what happens when you challenge his throne. That description always brings me back to that fact and it's facets that people do not think about consequence. Right. You know, you just think of the the now. Well, and and I think that a very important aspect that a lot of people miss out that they are trying to iron out here, and I think that they do a fairly good job of doing it, is that perception is everything. You are walking into a world full of backstabbers and liars and, and just the worst sharks swimming in the pond, and their entire society is held up by how others perceive each other. And when you walk in and you take off your old beat up duster and pull out your six guns, they're going to be like, what, what ill mannered fool embraced you? They have an analogy in the book. Mm -hmm. What works better? You going to buy a bunch of vampire books with money in a store and you leave, or you taking a nail on a board and beating the shit out of people, taking their money to go to the store and buy books and leave. (laughs) Right. Right. What, how does that work out for you? Right. And what they're also highlighting in analogy is the fact that, um, does it sound familiar when they describe vampires? It's based on perception, isn't it? Right. Everybody's world. It's a reality that you do not know what the person you're talking to is thinking behind their mask. Everybody wears them. Some say they don't. Everyone does. I tend to be really honest. So do you. Brutally so. And it nets us a lot of uh, flack. And we get that. Uh, But also... When we have loyalty, it's because you know exactly who we are. Right. And right. there's there's no misunderstanding. And so, we're, in other words, we're terrible in certain societies because you're going to be like, these guys can't keep a poker face to say, right. well, well, yeah, we don't want to is what it comes down to. But we've both been in corporate jobs where you have to. We've all been in those jobs where you got to keep that face. And your boss is going to pick and gravitate, and he always does, to the person that looks the best. Right. That is the shiny penny. Because that's right. who you want or to be. Or that speaks the best or that, you know, has has that that key element. He's looking for that certain something. And meanwhile, the hard worker who doesn't fit, doesn't have the look the boss associates with, doesn't have the the speech that he's used to or whatever, doesn't drink the right coffee, he's a tea right. drinker. You know, whatever the case may be, you get overlooked and that builds a resentment. It's the same thing in kindred society, but taken to the extreme. Right. Because everyone is a predator. Everyone's a monster. It's just to what degree do you fit in in that society? And, and, and so on. Right. I think uh, the, the point here uh, has been more than highlighted, but if often you feel that you've been shafted, think of your concept. Right. Does it mean quit your character? Nope. It no. means you show to Elysium, you got embarrassed, you understand why. You may be a killer of killers. Okay, I understand. I would turn it into a story moment. I would go outside and sit there. Right. I would wait. 
Or I would ask to speak to someone and say, I, I wasn't aware of the itinerary. I, I made myself a fool. I apologize. Uh, what's the appropriate way and method? And flip them. Force them to help you belong. Because at that point, you're taking all that embarrassment, swallowing some pride, and you're handing it to them saying, I, I do belong in this society. I'm trying to. What is it going to take? Right. Owe someone a favor, play the prestation game, get along to get along. And before you know it, you're going to be sitting amongst them. You may not agree with it. In fact, no vampire agrees with it. That's the commonality. If you think for a moment anybody wants to walk around in the absolute best possible suit and money and fanfare to get, to get falsely, sycophantly right. praised for it, it's bullshit because they're not really knowing you. Right. They're knowing the image you have to project to get them to even pay attention. To you. Well, let's move on a little bit um, into the book because honestly, all the stuff we've been talking about, it's just in the introduction. Like this is just... I thought 14 we were just, pages. I thought we were just skipping. <laughs> well, I I, I want to actually like touch on some of the things that are included in the book. Let's do um, it. But yeah, because I, I want to have another podcast where people <laughs> do listen to that too. So um, in chapter one, we're, we're starting the book now. Um, we talk about the undead and, and this, you know, we won't get like super deep into this, but just to kind of tell you what this is, this is like the Q and a, right? This is like the frequently asked questions of vampire, the masquerade. Like for instance, does a ghoul keep all of the disciplines she acquired? If she is embraced, they answer your questions. So this is, you know, what, like, it's not that long. It's only like four or five pages, but it's going to tell you all of the questions that like we've, we've been asked these questions a number of times. And there's a book, folks, like it tells you like what the weird stuff like, hey, what happens if I embrace a a wraith like you were saying earlier? Uh, And then we'll move on to chapter two. And I just want to I want to read this real quick because this like makes me gush. Right. It like makes my heart sing. Chapter two is called Among the Knights, and it starts in big, bold black letters. Clans are not fraternities. It happens more often than most uh, of us would like to admit. Gather your clanmates, noble kindred. Our prince shall hold court with you shortly. The bruja will emerge from deliberation in uh, one month's time to name our new primogen. We of the gangrel must join forces to strike down the hated Tremere. Bullshit. Yep. Yeah, uh, and and that's really I think what you're going to find here is that there are clans, but they do a really good job of describing them here. Envision a handful of those families, four or five of the most abusive, distrustful, dysfunctional households you can find. Now assume that at least a double handful of these unfortunates, if not more, are hardened career criminals, backstabbers, bigamists, extortionists, murders, rapists, practitioners of various and sundry, less easily defined offenses. Now add to each criminal psychological makeup, periodic loss of control and unimaginable violent urges, sensations induced by an influence beyond any earthly narcotics or trauma, the beast incorporate the terrible world spanning secret integral to their continued existence, the masquerade and the countless methods through which each co-conspirator, each and every single member of this quote family might exploit or otherwise leverage that secret. And, and now you kind of understand what, what that means, like what the clans are. And it goes on to describe like to a, a pretty decent, uh, level of, of detail, what, it's like to actually exist within these clans. And I think that that's the one thing that this chapter really definitely tries to address is something that we've noticed in a lot of games and almost all games that, you know, clans exist, right. But they're not, you know, well, by gosh, you're, you're a bruja. So you need to be there to protect me. That chapter is all about them fighting the own propaganda they created. Right. 
White Wolf made the clan books, they made the material, and then people became fans of their chosen side. Right. They treat it like a football game. Oh, absolutely. If I'm a fan of brew or soccer for or 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 baseball or British, football. Right. British football being soccer as we call it in America, or vice versa, whatever whatever sport you like. But the point is, folks get violent. Everybody loves to root for their city. Exactly. And when you don't get it, you know, you just go with it. And if you don't think like us, then you're against us. That's what this chapter fights. Is right. that was never the intention. Because remember, every clan book was written as if you're you're that character is the only one that got that story. Right? You may have shared stories, but ultimately it's like, what what did you take from it? Right. Not this is what you have to obey. And then uh of course this is where we get into the boogeyman of the uh the the game, the Bali. And um this stuff, you know, you'll be able to find in, in a V twenty book. So this isn't like super imperative. But interestingly enough, there are actual backgrounds in here. Well, it's not garage and true brew, we haven't talked about Bali yet. No, we haven't talked about Bali. That's um I don't know. Is that intentional? Uh yeah, no. Well, it is intentional because they, we never encountered to where it could be described because they're right. Dark Ages clan book. Right. As it is, and they're and they're in detail there. In the modern, you really haven't seen them yet until Well, would you like to would you like to take the reins here and talk a little bit about the Bali clan and what they are? Um, so th- we'll do it from this book's perspective because they give you an overview. Right. Um first thing I want to hammer home is that you're gonna think that the Bali by their symbol are these infernalists. They're just a group of infernalists running around serving the devil, using infernal powers, they're rife in the sabbat. No. That's not it at all. Um, perhaps the conceptualized idea of what the Bali was intended to be. They are boogeymen. They are literally the absolute worst of the vampiric nature. There is none worse. And they have a purpose. I won't detail that purpose till their clan book, and they don't in this book, so I do that on purpose. However, what they serve is is not some something trapped in the pit, as it were. It is something that probably exists between you're never quite certain, and they certainly don't define it yet, but they are trapped to it. I mean, it's not something that you can you can hope to conceive, but there are why it's hard to talk about is because I know in their clan book we'll dispel a lot of these myths uh, that come up with it. But to this point, you gotta understand that this clan is notoriously hunted, no matter where they are, because of the evils they do bring. Where you talk about every other vampire being gray, mm-hmm. they are definite. Like, (laughs) like if there's a Bali, fuck you, that you might be awesomely gray. No, you're not. And you do, and you can't be because they have a fanatical belief that every atrocity they commit serves to keep what once ruled the world in the darkness before God said, let there be light. It was not demons. Do your spiritual work here. Demons and angels come afterward. Demons are fallen angels, according to Christianity, and they can't fall until there's light. So this is before that. And what existed before? Was it a ball of nebulous chaos where it was eat or be eaten and what have you? Um, The Bali would tell you with a snicker, they don't know. They do know that it talks to them and they want to shut it up and they want to keep it quiet because if they don't, your world all comes apart. And that's their religious fanaticism. Are they correct? Well, what I could tell you is in the revised clan books as we go through, particularly the Asimite revised and even the Salubri when we get to it, there are a lot of clans that have had definite encounters with them, and and yeah, cataclysmic. I mean, we've we've uh, we've briefly sort of mentioned um, in the Ask My Clan book previously, and and you know some of the historical events that have led up to here, 
and and it's kind of a puzzle that you can piece together um pretty but, easily actually but yeah i mean the bali are we'll just put it this way when you as a storyteller have one in your game no one should know but they should know there's something really terrible or really not even terrible but off going on in your world and that's a great term to put it it should make you feel something is not right but you never know what. Right. You know, and things start happening out of pocket, but you don't know why. Right. And it's a good mystery. Like, if you're wondering how to put... It's a good villain. That's the bottom line. The clans listed in here, Nagaraja, Bali, those are villainous clans. And they're good because they're hard-nosed. You know, they're, those are things that should be put in hands right. of your most trusted narrators or players or you. And, and then no we else. and then we have the Tribruja, and you know how we feel about them. Yeah, they should never have existed. <clears throat> right. Um. So uh, then there's a... Uh, I, I I learned something, and uh, maybe it's because I skipped over this because I didn't care about the the stat parts of it. I didn't know arcane was a background that vampires could take, but here it is, right in the book. That's because you're used to me, and I don't agree with it. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So in in uh, any game I run, it's not something they can take. You have obfuscate, um, but they have things like age in here. They have military force, which I think some of those can definitely be good for your elder characters. Then, of course, we have the disciplines, and this this as well is something that you're going to have a newer version of in you know a newer book, so it's yep. not super important. But it, it, I think it can be good to read through these just to see. You know, sometimes they have the little the little blockers that tell you like, "Hey, check out some of this stuff. This is some more information." You know, click here to read further, even though it's a book and you don't click on it, but you get what I'm saying. Um, and then. Uh, we get into bloodlines and, you know, it's, there's some rules for that, you know, or not even rules, but like some, uh, advice, some ideals for that, some ideas on how to create them. They do point out the difference between a clan and a bloodline. So do you know the difference between a clan and a bloodline, Nate? Uh, it's a combination of age and prevailing belief. It's uh, it's, it's part, yeah, yes, but there is, a, there's a truer method attached to it as mm-hmm. well. They define it as being something with a distinct lineage. Right. From founder on down that's existed for a while that is relatively unbroken. Right. I.e. unbroken meaning there's a majority. We know where they came from. And there's a size. Right. Of your clan. Right. Right. You can't have a clan of five. Well, yeah. And, and and I think that uh, too, like when we talk about the Salubri, the Salubri definitely was a clan. Was. Right? Was. Right. And, and what I say like prevailing belief, that is, well, their founder was destroyed. And some other clan, some other bloodline, took their place and became a clan. And now, since they no longer have that foundation, and there's so very few of them, they're so small, they can basically be considered a bloodline. Right. However, they're not like an offshoot of another clan, except for they're an offshoot of the progenitors, the original progenitors. But an offshoot of another clan, the Giovanni, <laughs> right, right, right? Destroyed their, their parent clan, but they- No, the, the Tremere, yeah. I'm referring to the Giovanni. Oh, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were talking about the same thing. Carry no, on. The Giovanni destroyed right. uh, their parent clan, the uh, Cappadocians. Right, right. And in so doing it, sh- people think because... I should have let you talk. I shouldn't have talked over you. <laughs> but because they diabolized uh, the antediluvian of their, of their clan, they assume that, well, having an antediluvian makes you, make, makes you a clan now. It doesn't. It actually is the number and influence and power, which is back to what you said. Right. All those factors matter. Right. So, and and you can't be one unless you have it. Hence, why there are bloodlines not recognized in certain sects, and and so. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think if if the Semedi could find the could draw back their power to some, you know, massively powerful Semedi back, you know, centuries ago, and they had hundreds of uh, members of that clan, uh, you know, they could easily go, "We're a clan." 
and by golly, you're going to accept us. And yep. And that would be the case. It's, that'd, that'd be a great game. Right. But that's not the way shit is. So, you know, they, and they, they even talk about numerical quantity, right? Like, how many vampires are there? Eh, approximately this many. How many uh, vampires are there in, you know, this random bloodline? Oh, probably this many. And, and And this was forced. Right. Like, I remember back in the day, it was such a hot debated thing about population, not to get too much on it. But that's why it's in there. You force them to give you numerics. Well, and there's there's a difference between like having your game based in reality and like a suspension of disbelief and becoming like a statistical nitpicker. Like yes. I feel like, and I, I love you guys, but I feel like there's a lot of gamers out there. I'd applaud if I could. Their the only concern is uh, give me give me a, a give me data, give me statistics, give me numbers, and I think you're kind of missing the point. Like this is the, gaming is a game of imagination. And if you're so lacking in imagination that you need statistics, you need, I I need a foundation of numerical quantity. Otherwise I can't imagine this as being real. Why are you playing a tabletop role-playing game? Like just go do math. Like that's, that's just go do math. Right. Like if you go find a math problem and solve it, let's go to bed from a little bit just to even that out. I mean, I I agree with your stance uh, as passionate, but I know where it comes from. When you have statistics and metrics, you have control. That's what it comes down to. You can hold the storyteller to a level of control then too. Hey man, that's not how that works. It says this, mm-hmm. stick to what we know. We all agreed on it. Haha. It's a level of control. I, as a storyteller, love those people. Cause I go with my mighty eraser. I have changed it. <laughs> and by the way, after this argument where I'm the ST and I made myself right, I want you to know that we'll go back to that rule as it was right after this argument. <laughs> right. And I did that to point out something to you, not just to be a cheeky cunt about it, but I'm pointing out to you that it's a game. Right. Rules can be altered or re- like as a storyteller, I reserve the right, right. That in any given scene or moment to alter the rule to be more impactful. Right. Period. And, and there's, there's points, but we'll get to that later. I, I feel like uh, to piggyback off of what you said, the rules are the rules until they're not. Yes. Because we are telling a game of pretend. This is, we decided to take our action figures. We took our tin soldiers and instead of just bashing them together and going, I won, no, I won. I get to be the one who says how the contest plays out. So, yeah. So we talk more about creating characters for your game as a storyteller, creating antagonists, and, um, you know, just creating the elders. Cre- like, how do you pound out this world? How do you take this chunk of metal that is your imagination and hone it into a a beautiful blade. This is how, but it's not the the one thing that it isn't. It's not grab a piece of paper and make a graph. And this is how many you should have of this. And this is what you should have of this. (laughs) It's conversational. This is, this is like, I I think this is a long form podcast written in a book. It very much is. It's talking to you as if you're a storyteller and they're the writers of this book. Who wrote the book? Um, There's actually a bunch of different contributors to this book. Um, It was, of course, developed by Justin Achille, but um, he's uh, like a content, uh, additional materials, what they call it. Um, But I'm going to now brutalize names. Uh, Bruce Baugh, Ann Sullivan Braidwood, uh, Deirdre Brooks, Jeffrey Grabowski, Clayton Oliver, and Sven Skog. So there's a bunch of different people that contributed to this. And, you know, these are people that, well, White Wolf said, these are these are people that understand, that get what we're trying to do. And I feel like 
in the revised edition, what you really had was you had this idea that had become very popular, but had become kind of mired in, you know, just the traditional pratfalls of a game. You know, people get people enjoy what you're doing and they want to know everything. How this developed, right? Is is I really feel that this is just answering questions for that that right. came about from switching editions, right? Right. We knew a common argument, right? Uh, from going from even first ed to, to revise, there's people going, "Why'd you change it?" Mm -hmm. And then you you realize it, and it was made for the better, but it was a tough pill to swallow. But they did it, and then the explosion to Gehenna and people melted down, right? Melted down, and then it was like, "Cool, we got V twenty now." And there are folks who staunch are like, "V twenty is garbage," you yeah. know. And uh, I'll admit, there's some changes I like and don't like, but that's anything. That's right, anyone. Right. And so, but I feel this book goes, hey, man, everybody relax and just see what we're doing. You know, you as a storyteller kind of, you know, take ownership here and tell the game you want. This is how we do it. This is how we envision a lot of the techniques we would use if we were going to tell a game for you in your home. Right. Right. So um, it goes in a little bit further about um, elders in your game, playing elders, uh, storytelling elder based games. And then we go into chapter three, which is the storyteller's craft. Now this is going to give you a bunch of different strategies as a storyteller on how to handle the things that are going to come up in your game. The concept of balance, the, um, you know, players fighting with each other, um, problem players, uh, competition between them, um, using theme and using, you know, different concepts in your game. This is like advanced class. This really is like, okay, you've created your world. You have an idea of what you want to do. Now, how do you use those themes and how do you deal with, how do you strategically deal with players? Not, not put them off, but how do you hear what they have to say and also present them a game that they're going to enjoy? And when do you go, you know what, this is just not, it's not going to work out. And this is my most often referenced uh, portion of the book. Right. Just as an FYI. I mean, it just, it just is. I mean, in terms of use this book, I think without question, we feel you need to own this book. Right. Especially if you're storytelling it. But uh, ultimately, just, just on how to deal with certain problem players, they've been convention trotting since convention trotting was trotting, especially with their product. Right. And they've gotten the absolute worst and best players possible because even a good player can be a problem player right. if they are too good and how to, how to deal with that. So, right. So I want to, uh, can I read off some of the, the, oh, yeah. the problem player types? I want you. All right. So, um, there's a difference obviously between real problem players, like people that are there to disrupt people that are there to, you know, cause strife or just fuck up your game. There's no other nice way to say it, but they're there to fuck up your game. And as a storyteller, you should be firm and tell them to piss off. Like it's just simple as that. And you'll know because these people are not, they're unrepentant. They're probably mildly sociopathic and they're just there to fuck up your shit and don't let them like <laughs> simple as that. We we've all anybody that's, that's played in any kind of game or ran any kind of game long enough for more than two or three years has encountered people who are just, phew. sometimes you just got to tell them to piss off. Um, but as far as like problem players are concerned, these are some of the roles. See if you can find yourself in these problem player, the star creativity gone out of control. This player creates a tremendously detailed character. Well, how is that a problem? Read on. You'll find out the prodigy players invest a lot, a lot of time and love into their characters. Unsurprising given that their character is the player's cool, supernaturally powerful alter ego in a fantasy world that exists just for the gratification of the players. 
Who's that? Is that you? Are you a prodigy? Are you a freak? Some people confuse horror and disgust. Other people's parents didn't know enough to just ignore Junior when he stuck out his tongue and showed the family what he'd been eating. In either case, the result is someone who confuses role-playing that makes a character uncomfortable with descriptions and situations that make the other players uncomfortable. Uh, The Terminator. Be it with feral claw-whirling, celerity-boosted kung fu action or with twin double-barreled 12-gauge spewing dragon breath hell. This player knows that the most important thing their character can do is kill things. What's the solution to that one in particular? I feel that's a common one. Too many computer RPGs or hack and slash campaigns have left this player unable to tell the difference between storytelling and a first-person shooter. Generally, outside the sort of carnivals of carnage that are their native environment, these characters don't last long. They normally make one brief, frenzied suicide run until the forces of sanity catch up with them, usually in the form of other players' characters. Unfortunately, the games that make up these players' native environment have Chow Yun Fat-level body counts, for players, characters, as well as bad guys. When their characters are killed, these players will happily have another go at things immediately. Some may even make up several characters ahead of time in preparation for their untimely demise. Not too hard, as they're typically a carbon copy of the last character. On the good side, these players get bored easily. If you can run things realistically and just have them automatically slay mortals in their path, they'll either start role-playing or get out of the center of the mess they've caused, get tired of all the boring character interaction, and leave the game by the third session or get killed. In the latter case, just tell them they're not suitable to the game or make the player wait another month until you get around to introducing a new character. By that time, they'll be long gone. So basically, it's hold them by the head and let them swing until they get tired. That's move on. The rules lawyer. Your every judgment and ruling is recorded and meticulously filed in the mind or notebook of these players. They will extrapolate from these rulings, and when they attempt to do something ludicrous or derail the game, you will be told the day and time of all rulings you've made pursuant to the subject. We all know the rules lawyer. How do you deal with them? Well, read the book. (laughs) the chump i don't know what a chump is but let's find out it's inevitable that a player who has only minimal social skills will eventually decide to play a venture ex-cia interrogation specialist who was a high society debutante prior to joining the company so what do you do with the slickest thing since kane invented presence is stumbling around in circles trying to introduce herself this can be a serious disruption to a game particularly if the group lets each character be unchallenged in their specialty the dolt (laughs) oh don't don't stop now (laughs) you're on a roll someone has to be the dullest knife in the drawer and this player is that someone clues inevitably elicit mistaken conclusions interactions with storyteller characters go in unexpected and unrewarding directions these players usually learn about the plot via a slow step-by-step explanation given to them by a fellow player roughly three seconds away from a homicide rap (laughs) (laughs) Worse, these players are often very defensive about their lack of insight and the tensions that develop between the group as a whole and its less mentally apt members can be a very, can be very difficult to manage. So we, we've all we've all experienced that. The wallflower. Uh, I mean, that's the wallflower is a wallflower. This is the player often new to gaming with a case of terminal shyness. Quietly, she sits in the back of the group and watches the game go by. The I, veteran. Yeah, I was yeah say, right, really right. You know, it, Uh, The veteran. It is a natural human urge to tell stories. Unfortunately, some people have problems restraining this urge. Any event in play, or any event at all in the worst cases, is a sufficient excuse for this player to launch into an extended war story about a past chronicle, the player's military exploits, or any of one of 10,000 other topics. This is made worse by the fact that the resuscitation is usually delivered with sufficient volume 
to drown out the voices of more focused players. Yeah, um, we've all dealt with the veterans. Some of us are the veterans. Stop that. <laughs> uh, the loathsome quoter. Compulsive digression is the least amusing when you haven't yet heard the stories five times each. However, you and everyone in your group may well have heard everything Yoda and those wacky guys from my, Monty Python have to say. And I'll, and I'll just add to that. That is my pet peeve. Oh, it is. It is, it is uh, my pet fucking peeve. Yeah. The two-fisted coward. A more specialized version of the player whose character is too cool to fail. The player who wants his character to be at the center of all the exciting stuff, but not to take any of the consequences for being the person to press the button. He will insist on being at the head of any situation until it goes terribly wrong, at which point he will inform you that he never took part. The player slayer. Anytime two character actions or relationships start mirroring out of character relationships, problems are developing in your game. They may fester for a long time before manifesting, or they may be as instantaneous as someone starting a new character to get the character who killed the slighted player's last character. In either way, you're going to have a problem with game continuity. We, this is like going through a rogues gallery of our it's own hard experiences. It's to do this and not busting a nerd words. Right, right. Yes. Absolutely. The cardboard character, uh, you can pretty much summarize that. The lore master, the player who can't refrain from thinking of the game in mechanical terms. The X factor. Uh, for this player, the scheduling of the game is a matter to be determined on a week-by-week basis based on the time that is most convenient for planning her day. She may re- uh, arrive an hour or more late or may just never show up at all. How many... How many X factors did we have in LARPs? Oh where, my God. where, and I'm sorry to derail, but this is something that I just can't let go. Your pet peeve? This is absolutely my pet peeve. And it's especially troublesome in a LARP. Usually in a tabletop game, you've ironed out the people that are going to play. You know the time. Everybody shows up on Saturday at 7 p.m. or whatever your game is. But the X factor is something that happens all the time in a LARP where you've spent three weeks with this player, right? And you're working on all this stuff and you got this, like, we have to stand before the prince and we have to levy, you know, whatever. We have to, you know, we've been working so hard. It's it's just puppet strings and puppet strings and puppet strings. And, and we've scheduled our time. We're going to do this. We're going to stand before the city and we're going to declare that the prince is a whatever. And he doesn't show up. <laughs> and you call him and he doesn't answer his phone. And you get screwed, right? You, whatever, something bad happens. You don't get to have your thing. You stand there because he had some key components, some evidence. And then three weeks later, he shows up and he's like, Hey guys, what's going on? And you're like, what happened? You were supposed to be here for this scene. Ah, oh, yeah. You know, I just, uh, I, you know, I went, I went and saw, you know, such and such movie, but like we planned. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll just do it this week. No, that's not how it works. It's a pet peeve. It's a pet peeve more player to player than storyteller to player. But as a storyteller, it's it's really trying. It's It really can mess up your patience when you are the storyteller in that situation and you've been assembling the kittens and hurting them and then one just doesn't show up. I've never, I've never had that because I'm a stickler for time. Yeah. When it comes to that. And then last but not least... The X Factor, or I'm sorry, the copycat. I just said the X Factor. Uh, and the copycat is um, this is perhaps likened to the very peculiar form of hero worship or emulation. A player will find either another player or a character he really likes, admires, uh, or admires, and set out to have their character become like the other players. Either he will ask to create a new character in the image of the idol, or else begin adapting more and more of the character's habits. This also covers people who incessantly play characters from movies comic books, or other sources than their own mind. 
And then um, a really cool feature that they have in here is storytelling degeneration. For all those people that uh, have been confused or not quite sure, like, how do I do this? How do I run this from a narrow perspective and a broad perspective? You're going to get a bunch of tips and information on how to do that. And then um, chapter five, we go into alternate settings. And which honestly, it's right. Beat with a dead horse. Get a, get a so dark ages book. I mean, you know, it's great, but there, there's all these little hints on like, you know, how to run the game in these certain areas. But I mean, you know, not to denigrate what they've included here, but I mean, there's like books and you're naturally going to see some repeat. Right. Um, and, and I think all of us who have ran a modern day game for more than a year or two are like, well, how do I change this up? Wouldn't it be cool to run a game in World War One era? Like you, you'll, there's some tips here, um, and then a World of Darkness for Chapter Six, and it talks about power levels. It talks about crossovers with other supernaturals, and and um, kind of like answering questions about like, well, how does this work with this? You know, how does the mage spheres interact with a vampire, and you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, this is very much like, hey we have all these other books, although we've never really given you much of an explanation on how they interact with each other. Here's a better idea of how these powers translate from one end of the spectrum to the other. Um, and then, uh, chapter seven, the black hand. Um, yeah. Uh, this, uh, talks about, uh, the true hand <laughs> and what happened to them. Um, in the final nights and, um, you know, go ahead and read through this. It's only, you know, maybe 15 or 20 pages, which is what I think they should. Which is have why been. we didn't dive into it. Right. Um, the, the whole point is, is that you get it to the end. It's, it's not much. I mean, a lot of people are going to want to know where, why do they do it? Where did it come from? You're going to get your answers in this book. Um, or at least the start of it. Cause I really feel Gehenna kind of tells, there's a couple of their versions of what the game can end. Yeah. How they get into it. And uh, Kane's shows even then will we'll kind of beat around. Well, it'll refer to this. Right, you right. Know, it doesn't make a whole thing on it, but it's more or less like, hey, we don't know what happened. Right. But you will know what happened at the end of that. Right. Um, and, it, you know, the the true hand, I think, was always like a storyteller-specific thing. Um, How is it not? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it derails from the entirety of the game, I think, in a lot of ways. But anyways, you know, you're entitled to be fans of it. I don't know, nobody cares. Um, nobody- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, and then at the end of the book, it has a chronicle summary sheet, which I think um, the uh, emergence of computers and a variety of easily accessible programs has really eliminated the need for anything like this. But the um, format of it, is designed if you know nothing. Right, right, absolutely. If you just can't, or you're one of the people who needs the mechanic, you need the feel of the build. Right. There you go. If you want to if you want to jam this into a copy machine and copy this page and use it uh, in your game, great, go ahead. Uh, the other cool thing in here is there's like a, an ad for Vampire the Masquerade of Redemption. That's how goddamn old this book is. Um, anyways, we appreciate it. That pretty much wraps it up. Um, any final thoughts about the vampire storyteller's handbook? I have a ton. Like I said, I could talk for hours in this book and yeah. you, you cut me off necessarily. Yeah. I you did. needed to. Because right after this podcast, you can then go listen to our nerd words podcast where, where we will wax poetic about the art of storytelling and the things included in this book. Um, I, I personally think regardless of what version of this game that you're running, 
if you are a storytelling a game at all and you haven't read this book, even if you think I'm an expert, I've been doing this for five years, I know everything. If you haven't read this book, read it. Because I think the biggest folly of someone who believes that they're an experienced storyteller is no longer learning new material, saying, I already know that, I don't need to read the book. I would say try to avoid that pitfall because you're going to get stuck in habits you may not be aware that you're stuck in. And it definitely, rereading this book, it definitely like clicked some buttons for me and went, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So read through it. I approach everything in this book and in life as admitting one thing, and that's I know nothing. And that's why I need to. It's a hallmark of wisdom. And uh, you, that's I, I hope that resonates with a lot of you. Right. A lot of wise people throughout the years have said the same thing. There's a reason for that. It's a truth. Now, even if you're, if you've only ever, let's, let's say you're, you're a LARPer, tried and true. You're a LARP storyteller. There's a, there's a Mind's Eye Theater version of this book too, that came out right around this time that gives you like a more condensed version of it. That's a great book. And at some point I'm sure we'll review it because we'll review those LARP books. Also teach you how to handle crowds, conventions. Right. And that's, that's something that's not necessarily included in here. But if you've read that book and you're like, I don't need to read the other book because I've already read that book, don't let this one down. Like, <laughs> don't skip get, it. Yeah, don't skip it. Get this book and, and read it. Leave me alone. All righty. So uh, without further ado, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Um, definitely both of us have a high opinion of this book, and we advise anybody running this game, regardless of what version you're running, this transcends, my opinion, transcends yeah you know, second edition, revised edition, V20. This is like, uh, this should be in everybody's bag. This should be on everybody's table going through and going, oh yeah, you know, that strategy. At the very least, don't make it to where you're not running a chronicle or you're embarrassed that you're running one to read it to see if you got stuff wrong. This book isn't about right and wrong. It's about arming you uh, to better create right, and to, to better hold down, the, to protect the idea you've already started and maybe polish off some story. All right, so um, we need to decide at this point, um, when are we going to do the Transylvania Chronicles? Are we going to wait until we get into Dark Ages and then do the Transylvania Chronicles? We, we yeah. even already stated that. Yeah, We're okay. wait till I, I'm just, I just forget things because yep. I'm, I, I'm not sure-footed of memory. I think of the memory. coffee, you, you're on point today. Um, <laughs> you're on point. But uh, our next book is going to be Clan Book Nosferatu Revised. Sweet. So um, stick with us next week. We get to quote-unquote, dig deep into the Nosferatu clan, which is one of my favorites. Get some Uncle Smelly going. Yep, absolutely. So until next week, I'm Nathan. And I'm Bob. And this is 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, which (laughs) at some point may turn into 25 Years of White Wolf. So anyways, check out our website too, curseofcane.com. It's for our Patreon reward um, for our our online game. If you're interested in our podcast, you like what we do, you want to check out kind of some of the material of the game, check that out. Sorry, it's an afterthought, but it's like it's still under construction. It's still a website in progress, uh, but check it out. There's some interesting material on there. And until next week, goodbye. As the stars are I'll find you staring at the sky.